Thank you for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Another years-long sewage leak in Hamilton. We chat with one of Canada's 1986 World Cup heroes. More controversy at the FIFA World Cup. Young renters in Hamilton are especially feeling the pinch. And you're being reminded once again to get your flu shot. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. I think it's important for Hamiltonians to... Uh, get information as quickly as possible uh, and that uh, the city is as transparent uh, as we expect them to be when things like this occur. That is Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath reflecting on the latest bombshell out of the city of Hamilton unveiling a new sewage spill, one that had been going on since 1996. Nick Winters is the Director of Hamilton Water with the city of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Nick, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Rick. Thanks very much for having me. The question everyone is asking is how? How did this happen? So that's something, Rick, that clearly we have our own questions and we're still looking into. I mean, what we do know uh, is that from drawing records, we were able to recover from 1996. It looks like that there was a planned uh, job at this site to cut a hole in a combined sewer um, creating a discharge directly into a storm sewer system. Why that happened, uh, who signed off on on that work, uh, what information they were using to make those decisions, those are all things that we don't know presently. Let's talk about the checks and balances that are in place. Work needs to be done. The work is done. Obviously, in this case, there was no, I guess, follow-up because we, we just learned about it yesterday. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I might tell the story a little bit differently, and I don't say that to be disrespectful to, to the situation, which clearly should never have happened. Um, but I do consider, you know, part of the story to be a good news story in that, you know, yesterday we had a Hamilton Water staff member who came across a record, uh, a nine-year-old record, a video that didn't look right to them. Uh, they took the initiative to go out and do a field investigation to see what was going on. They found something that shouldn't have been there. Uh, and it got reported immediately and stopped uh, almost immediately with notification to the community. So when you say checks and balances, I think of that. That's the exact type of response that I think our community expects and that we should give to them. That uh, is, with respect to... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Rick. I was going to say, that is, a, that is a big check mark because who knows how much longer this could have gone on for. Uh, the fact of the matter is that, I, you know, that check should have been done a while ago, and I'm not laying blame on the individual who found it because they should be, you know, heralded for finally, you know, solving this riddle. But you, you, you must admit, though, it's not a good look for Hamilton, especially after, you know, the four-year-long 24-billion-liter sewage leak into Coots Paradise, and here we are again. I do admit that, and, and, and we, you know, we, uh, we recognize that completely. Um, it's something that uh, we are going to have to... Uh, where is the operators of this utility? And, and we understand our commitments to this community as stewards of, of this infrastructure. Nick Winters is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Winters is the director of Hamilton Water at the City of Hamilton. We're talking about the latest uh, sewage leak that's been going on since 1996 into the Hamilton Harbor. What is the impact environmentally? Do we know yet? So we don't know. Uh, that's something that remains to be determined as well. We did collect samples uh, from this location yesterday. Uh, we expect some preliminary preliminary results uh, tomorrow uh, with most of the results coming early next week. We do need to do some math uh, in the background and, and we're working on the best way to calculate 
how much sewage we think uh, made its way into the storm sewer at this location. There's a couple different ways to do that. We need to decide the best way. And we'll end up using uh, that calculation for a volume uh, along with the, the available data to determine what we think the environmental impact may have been. Are homeowners and businesses in that area, will they be disrupted at all through this investigation? So the, the residents and businesses in the area, there are going to be traffic disruptions. Uh, we do have a construction crew on site uh, presently. They've already uh, set up their traffic um, control for the day. Uh, we're hoping that within the next two hours, we're going to have a utility locates in hand, and we're just finalizing a plan to make this correction today. Uh, so they're going to see a lot of construction in the area today, probably starting around 10 a.m., uh, finishing up before 5 p.m., um, but what I can tell you is that we fully intend to have the situation corrected uh, with the sewers discharging to the right uh, pipes uh, by the end of today. Uh, this has been going on since 96, 26 years. I would imagine there's quite a bit of sewage in the harbor. What has been done? What is being done now to clean it all up? That's something we're going to have to assess as well, Rick. I mean, what we're talking about here is, is and again, not to be disrespectful of the situation, but a, a very small flow that's discharging into a very big pipe. And it's so close to the lake that there's always a lot of water uh, in this area. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, dilution in this system probably will prevent the accumulation of material that we can go and clean up. But, clean up. but that's something that, that, that we're going to have to look into. When you found this news out yesterday, and this is the last question I'll ask because we're running out of time, what was your reaction? What, what came to mind? Uh, to be frank, it was like you're getting punched in the gut, Rick. Um, you know, I, I mentioned we recognize our commitment to this community and our responsibilities as environmental stewards. My reaction uh, was not again, um, but that was quickly replaced by a gratitude for the fact uh, that we found it, the way that our staff responded in this situation. And, and you know, in response to something you said earlier, uh, I also recognize that had, the, had that staff member not taken that action, we could have been talking about this in two years or five years. So uh, I am happy that, you know, we know about it, that we're able to fix it, and we we're able to let the community know. Uh, Mr. Winters, we appreciate your uh, candid and, uh, and honest comments, and we look forward to uh, cleaning up uh, this mess, and hopefully we'll get to a better place uh, very soon. Thanks for the time today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Nick Winters, Director of Hamilton Water, City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Frank, it was like you're getting punched in the gut, Rick, but that was quickly replaced by a gratitude for the fact uh, that we found it, the way that our staff responded in this situation. And we could have been talking about this in two years or five years. So uh, I am happy that, you know, we know about it, that we're able to fix it, and we're able to let the community know. That is Nick Winters, the director of Hamilton Water with the City of Hamilton on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML after the city found out that there was another sewage spill, this one that had been leaking since 1996. That's 26 years ago. Well, now that this has been discovered, what needs to be done to clean it up and, most importantly, to prevent this from happening again? Linda Lukasik is the Executive Director of Environment Hamilton and joins us on GMH. Linda, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. You must have been steaming mad yesterday. Well, I mean, this isn't the kind of news that we want to hear in the community, especially 
since we're still grappling with remediation of the spill into Coots Paradise and Shadoka Creek. Yeah, it's not not ideal, that's for sure. How does this happen, especially in this day and age, and especially after what happened in Coots Paradise? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I don't know. I don't I, I I don't fully understand how this went undetected for so long. I I have to say, happy with the the very swift um, public uh, disclosure of of this find and 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 a new approach and a more open and transparent approach when an issue like this has emerged. But yeah, I mean, it, it is cause for concern that that this went for so long undetected. This is 26 years of sewage leaking into the harbor. What is the potential environmental impact? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's, I, I mean, that's always something that's challenging to to assess. I think we're kind of going through all, all of trying to figure that out, even in the case of, of Coots and, and um, the spill from Shadok. So, yeah, it's always a struggle to really determine what, what the longer term impacts are just know that it's it's not ideal and you know one thing that i'm always going to say uh, and this is something we at environment hamilton are a huge fan of and that's creating ways for the public to become empowered and play a part in in watching for issues and being able to report issues i think i think one of the challenges with this location on wentworth is that those discharge points as far as i know are not publicly accessible um and, um, you know, that, that can only lead further to problems going undetected. You know, community members notice these things and document and report these things. Linda Lukasik is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Linda is the Executive Director of Environment Hamilton, and we're talking about the latest sewage spill, this one in the city of Hamilton that's been going on since 1996. How do you even begin to clean this up from a remediation standpoint? Where do you even start? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess the the priority here is to stop the discharge, and it sounds like the city is moving quickly to do that, so that's really important. Um, and it's a discharge happening into a part of the harbour that's that's very industrial. So, you know, we, we've got a host of other leg- legacy challenges there too, so that's a very good question. Um, and whether this is something that's going to need the same kind of remediation as what the city has had to pursue in Shadok and into Coots Paradise, I guess, will remain to be seen. I know the ministry has responded, and I know they'll be looking into this this whole situation and, and the kinds of implications for the harbor watershed in that corner. So I guess all of that remains to be determined at this point. Given what we know about the Coots leak and now this one, does, does this latest incident make you think, geez, when's the next one going to happen? Yeah, I mean, you 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 have to you have to worry about that. And you know, this is a location where I think it's it's also worth mentioning. You know, community members there have have raised concerns in the past couple of years about odor problems from the sewers. And I and I know we've we've been in conversation with the, the ward councillor's office and staff there about concerns in the neighborhood. So you know, immediately I wonder whether there's a connection there between this ongoing issue and what. Um, and what community members down there have been experiencing in the way of odor impacts. So, so there's a concern. And and then I also wonder, you know, we've done a lot of work over the years as Environment Hamilton. In fact, one of the first projects we did um, was our pipe watch project, which we still do on and off. Um, and that was focused in the Red Hill Creek watershed. We were looking at combined sewer outfalls and storm sewer discharge points. And we know from that work that the city is looking at those discharge points. We, we've been told on a weekly basis that they check 
that there are public works staff checking those discharge points. So, so then, you know, I also wonder is the, is the same sort of monitoring program in place for the storm and combined sewer outfall uh, falls that are in this area of Wentworth? And, and if so, were there any telltale signs here? Because certainly if you've got direct discharge of combined flow, then you're likely to see <laughs> floatables. Let's just describe them that way. Everything from fecal matter to um, the telltale, you know, the plastic tampon applicators and condoms and that sort of thing that you that you often will see in sanitary flow. So you wonder about that too in terms of monitoring and were there any unusual indicators that something wasn't right. Um, those are those are questions that I think are important to be asking as well. Yeah, and I'm I'm hopeful we'll get some of those answers, including the exact volume of the discharge, which should be released hopefully sometime soon. There's going to be reports going to the Public Works Committee next week, and hopefully some action will be taken to mitigate any of this happening in the future. Linda, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Rick. Take care. That's Linda Lukasik, Executive Director of Environment Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Carl Valentine to take it. Swings it in. Bridge gets ahead on it. There's the shot. They score! George Pekas! Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Is is an exciting day for many Canadians, really all Canadians, as we get to watch hours from now Canada's national men's soccer team take on Belgium in their first World Cup game in 36 years. It has been a long and winding road, but they're finally back in the big show. And we're about to talk to a man who was there himself and played a massive part in Canada getting to its first World Cup way back in 1986. His name is George Pecos, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. George, how are you? Very good. Thank you, Rick. How about yourself? I am fantastic. I'm excited. I I can only imagine how excited you are because you once wore the red and white on the national stage at the 86 World Cup in Mexico. What are your thoughts and feelings as we get closer and closer to kickoff for Canada-Belgium? Oh, I'm getting so nervous and exciting and, you know, happy for the country and happy for all those, all those players, you know, uh, making it, representing your country and, and getting ready to go down to downtown for a buffet, watch the game with a whole bunch of people and, and celebrate. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of Canadian flags flying. It's going to be a lot of, a lot of fun. Absolutely. 86 qualifying. You were 33 years of age, you know, in the, uh, let's just say the twilight of your career, which spanned many, many amazing years. And you were left off the Canadian roster after the first round of CONCACAF qualifying and then were recalled. What was your reaction to getting the message that, listen, George, you're not going to be with us for round two? Yeah, it was devastating, really. We were, I think we were in Winnipeg or something doing a camp there, and then Tony called us in one by one and, and let us know if we made the, made the team or not. And, and I was one of the ones got cut. I was devastated and, you know, flying home. Had a few extra drinks on the plane, you know, all that stuff. And then, and then uh, I started playing with the Victoria Riptides in the Western Alliance Soccer League. And I was in San Jose uh, playing a game there. My wife phoned me and said that Dale Mitchell got hurt in the, in the first game against Costa Rica and Toronto. And they needed my services. And before that, I was telling everybody I'd 
if they ever called me back, I'd tell them where to shove it where the moon don't shine. But <laughs> when I got the call, I said I I was so excited I'll be right there. And then I caught the red eye the next more uh, that night and flew to Toronto and met the guys, and then we flew to to Gucci Galpa, Honduras. Well, it's a good thing that you didn't say no because you ended up scoring two of the biggest goals in Canadian soccer history in the qualifying stage against Honduras, which helped Canada clinch its first World Cup appearance. When you hear me say that, what's going through your mind? Oh, it's just tons of stuff, really. It was such an amazing uh, thing, really, you know, getting called up and then on the bench with a camera taking pictures of the 60,000 people in the crowd. And and then John Catliff got hurt and Tony Waiters looked at me and he said, George, you're in. <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> so a few minutes later, no no chance to warm up, and I got in there and started to knock a few bodies around and stuff. And then the second half, I ended up uh, uh, Randy Reagan. Our Tony's theory was to you know drop off and let the Hondurans dribble with the ball because they like to do it kind of like the style of the game now, where the goalie just rolls the ball to the guy and then you close him down. And Randy Reagan uh, <clears throat> made a great defensive play and got the ball and crossed it over and over my head it was uh, a volley and it snuck in the corner on that hard ground in Honduras and went in it was fantastic and we won one nothing it was unbelievable our guest on good morning hamilton on 900 chml is the great george pecos he was instrumental in guiding canada scoring a couple of big goals in concacaf qualifying to uh, uh propel Canada to the 1986 World Cup, their first and only appearance in the FIFA World Cup up to this year, where Canada's about to make its debut against Belgium later on this afternoon. You played 21 minutes in Canada's third World Cup group stage game at uh, the 86 World Cup in Mexico. What memories come back for you from that tournament? Oh, boy. I've, I'm sitting in a room full of memories in here with tons of tons of memories and and whenever i think about uh you know the world cup and the national team and watch them i always kind of kind of think about about those times and you know especially after i i made the 82 or the 84 olympic team and played all the rounds before we got to the olympics and then when we made it to the olympics i got cut from the team again that was the first cut because fifa said you were allowed to bring professionals in so tony cut me and then i got cut again and and anyways i uh, tony had a belief that he could believe in professionals more than amateur players because that was their job their trade their life so he thought he could get get more out of a pro and and I showed that you the total opposite that I was an amateur working in Victoria you know in the waterworks and taking time off with no pay and and leaving leaving my family to go support Canada and um Bing a bang a boom! I think I did a pretty good job, Rick. <laughs> Absolutely, you did, uh, George. What's your expectations for Canada this year's tournament? Uh, after watching the U.S. play yesterday, and Canada can kind of control the play, and, and you know, I think Canada's chances are really good. You know, uh, uh, Alfonso Davies. I see him interview, and he's he says he's ready to go. He's he's going to tear up the place, and. And then uh, you know you got so many so many good quality players that that the hardest thing for John's going to be to 
what players to start. You know, he's got such a tremendous uh, strength of bench. You can bring Ricky Larea on there anytime. You know, I mean, he's a dangerous player. And then against Japan, you know, when they scored their first goal, everyone's head probably went down. But the Canadians came back. They showed a lot of confidence and strength and and good good team morale. And I think that's what's going to get him get him through is a good good substitutes. You know, score some goals and uh, it make it a team effort because that's what it took took for us in 86 to get to the World Cup was a good solid team effort we didn't have so many individual stars like like uh, Team Canada now but but uh, with a good team effort I think they're going to get get into the next the next round. That would be amazing to see. We've already seen at least one massive upset at this tournament with Saudi Arabia beating Argentina. So who knows what will happen when Canada takes on Belgium later on uh, this afternoon. George, really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for joining us today, and enjoy the World Cup. Well, thanks very much for for uh, calling me. That's what that's always nice nice to get a call at uh, you know from from the radio guys and stuff. So, uh, go Canada, go, and we're gonna do her. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. World Cup back in action today. Today is what, what are we at? Match day one, two, three, four. Match day four. Uh, Morocco-Croatia already playing to a scoreless draw earlier today. If you PVR'd it, sorry, I just spoiled it for you. Uh, Germany-Japan will get underway in 39 minutes' time. Spain-Costa Rica at 11 this morning. And the big game today, as we know, is Belgium-Canada 2 p.m. as the Canadian men's national team back in the big dance for the first time in 36 years. It's going to be fun to watch. What has not been so fun are the controversies surrounding this World Cup. Every World Cup, virtually every World Cup, has a nugget or two of some controversy. This one, though, seems to be ramped up because you've probably heard the story, maybe you haven't, about the One Love armbands. So the captain of each national team, the captain of any soccer team, will wear an armband. And more often than not, it's just a number or a symbol or whatever the case is. But over the past number of years, because many soccer players want to carry the flag for those who need some help, a.k.a. a few years ago, uh, fight discrimination was really vaunted into the stratosphere, and rightfully so, because we needed to do better. And so a lot of these captain armbands would have the words fight hate or fight discrimination or... Uh, let's love each other. Let's let's all be one big happy family. Something to that respect. And so here at the World Cup, there is a, or at least that was the thought, there was going to be a one love armband, which was going to be worn to show solidarity with the LGBTQ community. Great idea. It's been worn before other tournaments, other games, other events, but not in Qatar. And for the simple reason that it is illegal and punishable by up to three years in prison in Qatar to be involved in a same-sex relationship. Uh, so much so that Human Rights Watch said that Qatari security forces were arbitrarily arresting LGBTQ people as recently as September. So we know that World Cups aren't awarded within a year. This was a 12-year process. FIFA knew what it was getting into when it said, all right, Qatar, you're going to be our home base in 2022. So several European nations, including England, for example, 
with Harry Kane, its captain. We're planning to wear these one love armbands to show solidarity. And so Qatar, through FIFA, has said, no, you can't do that. And not only can you not do that, if you do, we're going to give that player a yellow card. And in soccer, if you're not familiar, a yellow card is a bad thing. Because if you get a yellow card, you're not playing with as much aggressiveness as you've had uh, when you have no cards. Because if you get a second yellow card in that game, that is an automatic red card, which means you're out. And the team now has 10 players. You're playing shorthanded. And not only that, you miss the next game as well. There's not a lot of games in the World Cup. So missing a game is big, especially for your captain, who more often than not is your best player or a very key player. And so this is now playing out. And the European nations who were planning to wear this armband are saying, all right, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're not going to jeopardize our chances of winning games, which is kind of sad, but in the same right. Okay, I get it. There was also a couple of incidents outside World Cup venues, one involving longtime soccer journalist Grant Wall, who was told the other day, this was Monday before the U.S.-Wales match, that, no, you cannot come into this World Cup venue unless you change out of the shirt that you're wearing. Because the shirt that Grant Wall was wearing had a rainbow pattern around a soccer ball. He was detained for nearly half an hour. They confiscated his phone. Wall was eventually allowed to enter with the shirt on in an incident that FIFA called a mistake. Yeah, you think? Former whale soccer player Laura McAllister was at that game on Monday. She wore a rainbow hat and says that security would not let her in with the hat on. She eventually got in. We even heard the other day from Secretary of State Antony Blinken from the United States saying that free speech should never come at a personal cost. And he's exactly right. It's always concerning from my perspective when we see any restrictions on freedom of expression. Uh, it's especially so when the expression is for diversity and for inclusion. Um, and in my judgment, at least, no one on a football pitch should be forced to choose between supporting these values and playing for their team. We also heard just before the tournament began over the weekend, I'm not sure if you saw this or not or heard this, FIFA president Gianni Infantino, who was absolutely tone deaf in the comments that he made in response to the criticism that Qatar has received for its human rights rules, <laughs> if you can call them that. Listen to what the FIFA president had to say about it. I have uh, very strong feelings. I can tell you that. Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. The reality is Gianni Infantino is a middle-aged white man who should not be feeling any of these things because he cannot feel any of those things. An absolute shameful display by the FIFA president. And, well, we have what we have. And let's hope 
that these issues will continue to be in the spotlight, which he and other FIFA dignitaries do not want to talk about any longer. He made that known later on in the news conference, saying that uh, let's have a discussion as opposed to being criticized. Well, if we don't hold you accountable, how's anything going to change? You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. New report out from the Social Planning Research Council, and it highlights the impact that the housing crisis is having on young renters in Hamilton. Alana Westervelt is a social planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Alana, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thanks. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for coming on today. Let's dive right into this report that says young renters in this community are feeling the greatest impact by accelerated rental prices due to the current housing crisis, which is no surprise. What did you find? Yeah, I think that the report itself highlights a lot of um, interesting findings that came out of some of the data that we were able to to pull together. I think when we're looking specifically at, at young renters accessing the rental market, um, there's significant barriers um, that folks are, are facing when we see, for example, that bachelor units in the city have been decreasing over the past a period of the past 20 years. We've seen almost a 20% decrease in the number of bachelor units that are available. And these are the units that are most often rented by youth and then new entrants into the rental market. And at the same time, we've seen the cost of these units it almost double uh, or more than double um, for folks that are, are attempting to access for the first time. So I think when we're looking at... Um, just some of the the unique circumstances that that young renters are facing when it comes to accessing the rental market, the affordability and availability are two um, key pieces there. Absolutely. You mentioned the bachelor unit. Prices have skyrocketed, according to this report, by 103% over the last 20 years. And for those of you listening, you don't have to do the math because that's $434 a month higher now than when it was back in 2001. And that's led to more and more young people, and not surprisingly so, grouping together to say, hey, let's rent uh, an apartment or a, a flat uh, together, a, a group of us. But that is presenting some difficulties as well. Very much so. We see um, folks entering the rental market, uh, young people in specific, entering into room rentals or group leases where they may not know the other tenants. Um they may sign a lease with folks not knowing any of the background of those individuals. And so this puts young renters in a specifically in a, a precarious rental situation. Um, we've seen our rental landscape change so drastically um, that folks are being forced into these situations, not necessarily out of choice, but out of necessity in order to, to put a roof over their head. But we don't have adequate protections under our current legislation, including the Residential Tenancies Act to protect um, these young renters from some of the, the challenges that can come with, with renting. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Alana Westervelt, social planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton. We're talking about the housing crisis and the impact it is creating on young renters in this city. The report also identifies discrimination against young renters. What's happening in this regard? Yeah, so there's a number of tactics that landlords are are able to use um, 
And and some of them are perfectly legal, right? You can ask for uh, a credit check. You can ask for references. You can ask for a rental history. But for young folks accessing the rental market for the first time, they may not have these pieces. Uh, And so when it comes to a landlord then kind of choosing who they want to rent a unit to, um, we see youth being discriminated against. Uh, because they may not have a good credit history, because they may not have had a chance to build up that credit history. Um, we see more frequently folks accessing, ac- asking for uh, co-signers because of the precarious job situation that many young renters face. Like, there's not necessarily the income security that landlords would like to see, but when folks don't have um, someone to co-sign with them, that becomes a significant challenge for, for folks to even access the rental market in the first place. I'm not sure if the report dives into this or not, but is this is this whole scenario forcing some or many young renters to look at potentially less appealing options that are on on the market? A hundred percent. And I think even the room rentals and group leases are, illustrate that. I think by and large folks, um, when they're looking to move out, they're not always looking to, to be living in shared accommodations, right? And we're seeing folks older and older being forced into those types of situations. And I think it's also really important to note that um, room rental situations and, and group leases are also largely unaffordable for, for young people that are on social assistance. So whether that be Ontario Works or the Ontario Disability Support Program, or just living off of student loans, when we're looking at the rent just on a room being around seven or $800 a month, that our social assistance rates are not adequate for folks to be able to be housed in those types of situations. So it makes it even more precarious for the individuals, but also for others that are on that, that lease. The uh, report will be the centerpiece of a virtual community meeting tonight. Tell us about what's going on. Yeah, so tonight we're having a what will hopefully be the first of many community conversations with the Social Planning and Research Council. So the event will take place from 6 to 7.30 over Zoom, inviting anyone from the community to participate in it. What we'll do is kind of a deep dive, quick deep dive into some of the data from the past three reports now, this being the last one um, around poverty, food insecurity, renters kind of in general, and then the effects of the the rental market on young renters specifically. Um, Have a bit of a panel discussion uh, with the frontline staff as well that's worked in the sector for quite a long time, and then open it up to a more broad conversation with anyone that's in attendance. For those who do want to attend virtually, is the Zoom link on the sprc.hamilton.on.ca website? It should be. If it isn't, it will be there very shortly. (laughs) Excellent. Well, we look forward to that. Alana, thank you for your time today and uh, good luck tonight. Thank you so much for having me. That's Alana Westervelt, social planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton. And tonight's uh, community conversation, if you will, goes from 6 to 7.30, as Alana mentioned, on Zoom. And the link... I think it's I think it's on there. SPRC.hamilton.on.ca is the website and uh, participate in a community discussion that is of uh, big importance, especially for those in the young rental market game. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You gotten your flu shot yet? We are in the thick of things in flu season. I'm actually getting mine later on today. Me and the kids going to be hopping to our nearby pharmacy and 
three needles later, we'll be good to go. But in saying that, the uptake this flu season in terms of receiving flu shots among Canadians is relatively low. And healthcare professionals across this country are urging you to go out and get your flu shot. Dr. Samir Sinha is the Director of Health Policy Research at the National Institute on Aging and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Sinha, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Rick. It sounds like the vaccine fatigue is real. Yeah, it is real. And I think people are saying, look, I've gotten you know four or even five shots of uh, the COVID vaccine, and uh, I think I'm up to date. I've got the essentials. Is flu really necessary? Is, is, is it that serious? And the answer is yes. It, it really is something that we're worried about this year in particular because we haven't really had uh, two recent flu seasons. And while people are seeing what's been happening with RSV, uh, we're also seeing now that we're starting to see a real uptake and a major surge. And we're probably on record like Australia to have the worst flu season in, 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 in a number of years. Is that a relative disappearance of the flu season the last couple of years? Is that playing a part in the slow uptake this time around? I think it is in the sense that people have been really focused on protecting themselves against COVID-19, you know, staying up to date on their vaccines, and and not really seeing flu to be a threat, especially in the last year or two. And, and in general, I think a lot of people feel that isn't the flu like a common cold, and, and it's not that serious. But we have to remember that after COVID-19, influenza is the second most vaccine-preventable cause of death every year in Canada. And the majority of those deaths are occurring amongst, unfortunately, older people who bear the brunt of hospitalizations and also uh, deaths as well. But flu, in saying that, flu shot uptake has been below 50% for years now. Yeah, it's been below 50% uh, amongst the general population. And for older adults, it's a bit better at about 70%. But our Public Health Agency of Canada has set, um, they've set the 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 target at over 80% in particular, because they want to make sure that we can get older people uh, vaccinated against something that can be quite deadly for them. Uh, our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Samir Sinha, the Director of Health Policy Research at National Institute on Aging. We know that everyone should get a flu shot, but who should absolutely get one? Who should absolutely get one? We say that anybody six months and older, because right now we're seeing a real surge of flu, especially amongst um, young people at the moment. And right now we see a lot of people who are landing in hospital who are with either RSV or flu. Uh, but really what we say is everybody six months and older should be getting the vaccine. That's the recommendation from our um, a National uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization. But in particular, we really recommend people who are older and people who might uh, have a more compromised immune system uh, if they have an underlying chronic condition. They're the ones who are at greatest risk of getting sick and, and potentially dying from the flu. As you know, we have this triple threat of, of not only flu season, but COVID and RSV, and it's really hit many hospitals hard, including pediatric hospitals especially. Uh, Mac kids, no exception to that. Um, is there any anecdotal evidence or evidence that we can look at that if more and more people get the flu shot, we're going to see less and less people in a hospital? 
Absolutely. We know that uh, the higher the rates of vaccination against influenza, the lower the chance that you're going to get the flu in the first place. Uh, and I think the key is that right now there's so many different viruses circulating at the moment, especially every fall. So people are now much more aware of RSV, which has always been around, but for which we don't have a vaccine for COVID-19, influenza, and rhinoviruses that cause the common cold. So the more you get protection against things you can get protected against, like influenza and COVID-19, the you know you lower the chance of yourself getting infected. And this particular year's flu strain is quite nasty, and and that's and we actually have a pretty good match with this year's flu season vaccine. So that's why we're really recommending that people uh, appreciate that. Uh, they can get extra protection this year if they get vaccinated against influenza. We have a couple more minutes with Dr. Samir Sinha from the National Institute on Aging. There are still, uh, and I hear it from time to time, myths and misconceptions about the flu shot. That that seems puzzling. Well, I mean, it's, I, I think a lot of people have heard you know a number of things. I, uh, sometimes they hear people saying, oh, I, I got the flu shot and it, and it gave me the flu. And the key is the flu shot, like the COVID-19 vaccine, they can't actually give you that, that illness. The challenge is, is that it's, it's flu season right now. It's cold and flu season. And sometimes people will get the actual flu shot. Um, and it takes about a week or so before it fully revs up your immune system properly to fight against the flu. But in the meantime, you might have gotten a common cold or other things. That's why sometimes people say, oh, uh, you know, the, you know, can I get the flu by, by getting the flu shot? The answer is no. I think the other thing is people often think that the flu isn't really that harmful. Isn't it just like a common cold? But it actually isn't. And I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, what influenza is and how it really can knock you on your feet, uh, off your feet, frankly, and, uh, and, and actually cause you to be quite ill. Yes, we encourage everyone to get their flu shot and do it uh, er as early as possible so you can um, avoid a trip to the hospital, whether it's yourself or or a loved one. Dr. Sinha, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Samir Sinha, the Director of Health Policy Research at the National Institute on Aging. As I said... Me and the kids getting the the flu shot today. The wife is going on Tuesday. She's off and uh, we'll be shotted up, I guess. (laughs) We'll be uh, well protected against the flu. And again, another misconception is if you get the shot, you're not going to get the flu. Well, no, you can still get it. It will, just like COVID, you can still get it even with the vaccine. It's just not going to be as severe. So... Fingers crossed that'll be the case this coming winter. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.